Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 931. On this week's program, David Lorelo welcomes Emily Messina, broadcast and media manager for the Reading Fight and Fills, and Emma Tiedemann, director of broadcasting and voice of the Portland Sea Dogs. With their teams recently facing off at AA, David asks the pair about their respective experiences on the way to becoming minor league broadcasters, including Emma's grandfather calling games and Emily spending some time down under. Emily and Emma also get a chance to talk about a day in their lives at work, as well as some of their most impressive prospects on their squads, including Tristan Casas, Ethan Lindau, Grant Williams, and more. Finally, the trio talk about some players from their favorite major league teams, including the remarkable Bryce Harper. He's just super consistent for the team. You know, they've had a ton of injury problems. They've had a ton of other things going on, but he's, you know, really always there uh, getting the job done. Yeah, I kind of like his fiery personality too and his relationship with Bryson Stott, you know, kind of taking him under his wing has been really cool to watch. Following that, Jay Jaffe and Dan Zimborski get together to talk about the home run derby and the all-star game. Jay recently rode on the derby and is excited about the improvements to the format while Dan is holding out for a pitcher to one day be featured as the 8th seed. The pair also talk about their favorite All-Star games they can remember before turning to the topic of Joey Gallo. The Texas slugger did not dominate in his derby debut, but he is still having a fantastic season. Jay and Dan discuss the tricky position the Rangers are in, as they must be considering trading him. You could always re-sign him later if you if you yeah, want. That, yeah, exactly. I See mean, Chapman. Know, I mean, the Yankees, yeah. they got Torres, which, who was more exciting before this season. They got sure. Torres and they got Chapman back. So you can do right. both. And if he understands why, I mean, I don't think he's going to say, well, screw you. I'm never going to sign with you again. I mean, it. Right. you can have both. You can have the beer and the tacos. But before we get to these great segments, I must serve my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com store. We, of course, have shirts and hats and mugs, and an ad-free membership is the absolute best way to browse a site and help us keep things running. They make a great gift, too. We appreciate all of your support. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guests on this segment are Emily Messina, broadcaster for the AA Reading Fightin' Phils and Emma Tiedemann, broadcaster for the AA Portland Sea Dogs. Rather than, you know, run down bios of the two of you, maybe you can each introduce yourself in a little more detail than, than I just gave. Okay, definitely. So Emily Messina, broadcaster, media relations for the Reading Fight and Phils. This is my second season here, but first baseball season underway with that COVID year. Spent a couple of ta- other seasons working in baseball, college, I'm an affiliate of the Indians, and then out in Australia for a season there. So I'm making my way around, just enjoying finally being back to baseball and getting some experience. And I'm Emma Tiedemann. I'm the director of broadcasting for the Portland Sea Dogs. I've been working in baseball since 2014, just about at every level, uh, from summer collegiate to independent to now. Uh, this is my third season in affiliated ball, uh, but like Emily, uh, my fourth year overall um, after the COVID year last year. And both of you, of course, grew up big baseball fans. You're still big Major League Baseball fans. Just how hard is it to be a fan of a Major League Baseball team when you were broadcasting in the minors? I think, you know, growing up, I've always, you know, had a, had some teams that I've really enjoyed watching, especially being from the Northeast. It's a pretty big deal over here. But the longer I work in the sport, the thing I more I more have respect for certain players and I, I follow their careers as opposed to, um, you know, just sticking with one team or another. Yeah, I guess part of my thought is how hard is it to actually follow? Because while, you know, the Phillies, the Red Sox, whomever else is playing at seven o'clock, you are at a minor league ballpark in front of a microphone. So you are actually not seeing them play. Absolutely. I mean, every every night we want to talk about the Red Sox, but it's tough whenever, you know, the next morning people go into work and they're like, oh, did you see the Red Sox game last night? And your response is always, no, but did you catch the Sea Dogs last night? <laughs> so it's an interesting balance of still trying to follow the major league, whether it's your affiliate or just your personal favorites that you like to follow. Uh, but, I mean, we're working every night, so we get the chance every other Monday, it seems, to watch an actual major league game. Yeah. Are there a lot of late nights paying attention to West Coast games? Or are you pretty fried from a night behind the microphone and just sort of chilling out? Sometimes I'll tune in when I'm wrapping things up here at the office or when I'm driving home, if there's still a game playing on the radio, I'll, I'll tune into that if I can. 
Yeah, I, I think that I try and follow, you know, Otani, obviously trying to keep up with that bit of baseball history that's going on. And, you know, at the Padres and, and listening to, to the West Coast guys, too. So trying my best to keep up with it. Yeah, Emily, you're from Philadelphia, so I assume you grew up a, a Phillies fan, correct? Yeah, well, I grew up, you know, only about an hour away from the ballpark. So lots of trips to Citizens Bank Park in uh, my young days, but my parents are from New York, so they grew up what, being Yankees fans. So I would also get the opportunity to listen to those games on the road, which, you know, Susan Wallman does their color there. So um, I think listening to her really, you know, helped me make a career path for myself. Yes, I'm not sure how much I should ask you then about the Phillies being 44 and 44 and favored by a lot of people to win that division as of today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very exciting going into the half at a really great place. I think, you know, the Phillies always have their ups and downs and being a fan of theirs is such a thrill ride. But it's really awesome to be at the younger level of the team and watching these guys who are going to go up there and maybe could even have an impact this season. And that, of course, uh, Bryson Stott, I'm sure, is on that list, despite him being two steps away. Yeah, he definitely is. We actually already had Matt Veerling come all the way from AA to the majors this year. So definitely possible. Not sure how they're going to handle Bryson Stott. But he he said, you know, he just will go where they tell him to go and, and do his job out on the field. Yeah, before we jump back to Emma, I was just at Fenway Park. The Phillies were just at Fenway Park uh, this past weekend. I was there. And the Fenway crowds like to chant Yankees suck when there are other teams there. They also <laughs> like to shout overrated and chant overrated at players. And they did that to Bryce Harper. And I guess you could both weigh in on this. Is Harper overrated or is he actually underrated? Well, I think he's going out there and he's getting the job done and doing, you know, what the team has asked him to do. He's got a lot of power off his bat and he's an incredible outfielder as well. And I think he's just super consistent for the team. You know, they've had a ton of injury problems. They've had a ton of other things going on, but he's, you know, really always there uh, getting the job done. Yeah, I kind of like his fiery personality too. And his relationship with Bryson Stott, you know, kind of taking him under his wing has been really cool to watch. Yeah, one of my thoughts is a player like Harper, a lot of fans think, well, he's supposed to hit a million home runs while he's only hitting 260. You look at numbers like in his WRC plus is outstanding. And that has me thinking to you, Emma, is one reason that you got into the business is your grandfather was an announcer for a long time. So I think the way that he called games stats based is very different than than what you do in his time. You know, WRC plus did not exist. Absolutely. Well, he even has told me stories about how they had one of the first uh, TI calculators in the booth while he was with the Rangers, and they would have to figure out the batting averages, you know, by hitter and by hand as they would come to the plate based on their last at bat. So yes, and just even in that simple way of statistics, it has changed dramatically just because we have so many numbers at our fingertips while, you know, whenever he started, they had to do it all by hand with one of the fancy new calculators from Texas Instruments, which was down the street from them. Right. And your grandfather's name, so everybody knows? Bill Mercer. Bill Mercer. Yeah. Very well known in, in your neck of the woods down in Dallas. So did you grow up a Rangers fan? I did. I did. That was my team. And right now, looking at their record and their rebuild, I suppose you probably... Don't really, maybe don't know what to think, you know, which, dire <laughs> which direction is this team going? Yeah, they, you know, I think the beginning of the season we knew was going to be another kind of down year, but there's been some surprises. Um, it, it's still been a pretty fun season. And of course, with Jack Leiter being drafted by the Rangers, I think there's hope for the future. But yeah, this season definitely could have gone a couple different ways. Uh, but, you know, they're still a fun team to watch and a lot of, lot of room for, for growth uh, as the season progresses. Right. Well, both of, of you, you know, know a lot about growth with, you know, being at double A level. And Emma, you have got some pretty notable players in Portland. Tristan Casas, of course, being the most notable, who is going to go to Tokyo, I believe. Yes, he is. He uh, leaves in a few days. Yeah. What have you seen from him? You know, is he a future big league slugger? From everything that I have seen through the season and, and just kind of getting to know him a little bit better, I think so. The way he, he can break down each at-bat by pitch and analyzes each time he goes to the plate, 
He is, you know, definitely focused and locked in. And it's not to say that our other players aren't locked in while they're on the field, but Casas just kind of has a little bit of a different look to him and takes every play really seriously while he's on the field and makes adjustments pitch by pitch. You know, he chokes up on his bat when he's down in the count with an 0-2 or a 1-2 count, you know, has gotten better as the season has progressed, showed the power early, and then had his first home run um, and, and quite some time last night here in Reading. But, you know, I think he definitely has the potential of being the big league slugger that the Red Sox want. No, that's great detail. One thing that I've learned over the years is that minor league broadcasters could probably become scouts pretty easily because you watch a lot of baseball and you have to know these players very well. Absolutely. I mean, we're the only employees for our teams that get to see them play every single day. And especially, you know, when we travel, I mean, it is day in, day out. We get to see each at bat, each game and and how they progress. So, you know, <laughs> I don't think I'll ever be a scout, but, you know, we do get to, to kind of see these guys at a different level than, than anyone else. Yeah, maybe you can skip the scout and go straight to uh, be one of Kim Ng's contemporaries as GM. (laughs) I like the broadcast booth too much. (laughs) Yeah, before we jump to Emily, a Sea Dogs player that I had an opportunity to talk to about a month ago, right after his promotion, is quietly turning into a great prospect, and that is Devlin Brandberg. You know, what are you seeing from him? He is displaying really his versatility at the plate. You know, last week he finished a single shy of the cycle, had a a triple that, you know, it didn't really bounce away from the outfielder. It wasn't one of those where it was obvious triple off the bat, but really displayed some speed. He's made some good plays in the outfield. I would just, you know, for him, it just looks like he is a perfect fit at the double A level. There wasn't really that kind of growing pains a uh, couple of games where he was getting used to the pitching. He just hit the ground running in Portland with the Sea Dogs. And I think that's attributed to his talent level and, and his skill, but also the fact that I th- he seems very comfortable with our team. And our team just seems like a, a very close-knit group of guys that have been through the Red Sox system together for the last few years. Yeah, Emily, I do not know the Philly system nearly as well as I do the Red Sox. So who can you tell me about besides Bryson Stott? who you think has a a great future? I think a a dark horse pick uh, that people might have not thought going into the season, but now they're probably like turning their heads at is our second baseman, Daniel Brito. He's been our leadoff bat pretty much the whole season, a team high 64 hits and a lot of them for extra bases. And as a second baseman, that's really important. But truthfully, as the leadoff bat, you know, he gets on base has had more multi-hit games than no-hit games this season, which is pretty incredible, and a former gold glove a couple years past. So I think he definitely has a bright future ahead of him as well. And then on the pitching side, Brian Marconi. He is uh, just in his second year of professional ball, but has really uh, shined since his call-up from high A. He's got a team-high seven saves after you know coming up a month late into the season. A great personality, really competitive on the mound and has fallen into the closer role exceptionally well. And Portland, of course, has a second baseman who is way way under the radar, who I know at one point this year had the lowest strikeout rate of any player in minor league baseball. And I believe he is still hitting 300. Emma, is that correct? He is. He's uh, 301 right now and still Still a very hard batter to strike out. Even if he's down in the count, you know, it seems like he works his way back every time or at least puts the ball into play. He just has been such a consistent batter, whether he's the number nine batter or the leadoff batter like he was last night against Reading. Yeah, and because I didn't remember to turn my brain on before we started podcasting, remind me of his name? Grant Williams. Grant Williams. Grant, if you're listening, uh, my humblest apologies. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Emily, one of your pitchers that I talked to early in the year, Ethan Lindau, I took a quick look, and he's actually one for two as a hitter. I assume you had a good time calling that base hit? Ethan Lindau actually now is in Jersey Shore. He's been there for about a month now, but he's seeing success there. Just, you know, need to get a little bit more work in, and then hopefully we should see him up here uh, later this season. But we've actually had another pitcher who's really been raking, Jack Perkins has had a triple and a home run, which was pretty exciting. Wow. So was Lindau's base hit then with Jersey Shore? It was. Okay. Yeah. Very bad with my homework today. But with pitchers getting base hits, do either of you have an opinion on the universal DH in the big leagues? I like 
pitchers who rake. You know, I think it's fun. I know the arguments on both sides, but from purely a fan standpoint and, and someone who's watched baseball, I, I like to see the pitchers because I like to see the Bartolo Colon home runs that happen once in a lifetime. And, and those, yes, they happen, you know, once or twice a season, but I think it's all worth it. I think it's fun to watch and adds, adds something else to the game that, you know, that can be unique and can be uh, special when a pitcher hits a home run or a grand slam like we saw in San Diego. And I, uh, I would actually like to go back and correct myself because you were right. That hit was in early May while he was still with us. So that was May 29th. Lindau got a hit. But I, I'm with Emma. You know, we've had a bunch of guys who, who pitchers who do really work on their at bats. And they're not uh, the type of guys that are just going to come up and stand at the plate and kind of want to get it over with. We've got a bunch of guys who really enjoy that side of the game. And, you know, I do see the benefit of being able to get other people in the game with the spot of the designated hitter. So it's a tough call there. Yeah, my one trip to Portland followed a rainout, so I got to see two seven-inning games with a, with a doubleheader, which I am not a fan of. I don't know if the two of you have a differing opinion on that. Well, seven-inning, I think from the broadcast and from the minor league standpoint, I don't mind them. You know, it's from the staff standpoint, it's always just a mad dash between those games, and I don't know if Emily likes calling 14 innings and a and a day by them by herself, but I don't know. I I kind of like the shorter games. I kind of like the the difference and the the strategy. And yeah, I I don't I don't mind them at the minor league level at least. Yeah, I agree with Emma down here. I think it's beneficial for everybody just not to you know run through pitchers and especially you know with how hot it is around here too and just having guys out there you know, all day for a doubleheader can be taxing. And especially on my end in the broadcast booth, Emma's right. Especially when you're doing it by yourself, it can get a little tough. And you are both in Reading right now with Portland playing in Reading. So maybe run me through each of you what your day looks like, because I think it's safe to say that you are both doing more than a podcast right now. We are speaking on Wednesday and then going to the ballpark for nine innings and then leaving. It's definitely a little bit different home versus on the road, at least for me. You know, I have some other office duties I'm responsible for, working on the game notes, working on getting the lineups together, stat packs for our coaches, organizing any media requests, any interviews for my players, and then a bunch of other things social media-wise and, you know, my groups and other things that I cover at the office. Yeah, for me, it's uh, the road is, is kind of nice. You know, I wake up and do the same thing every morning, which is drink copious amounts of coffee <laughs> and then sit down with last night's box score, uh, compile the game notes, send them off to Emily and then compile a, a stat pack, send that off to my manager, get our starting lineup, send it off to Emily, uh, then input it into our social media. Um, today in particular, I'm proofreading and, and double checking and triple checking all of our baseball cards that will be ordered by the end of this week and then organizing interviews as well for our players, I'll probably sit down with with one of our players today for our pregame show, then setting everything up for the, the radio station. And then if I have some time, then I will sit down and, and do some more research on these guys and, and try and find little streaks or stats um, that I can drop in for for 10 seconds tonight for the uh, the broadcast. But, um, you know, anything to add a little something else to each each night's call. And uh, hopefully there will be no tarp to pull. I think we should be good for today. <laughs> yeah, Emily was on tarp duty yesterday. That's also one of the benefits of being on the road. You, you'd get to sit back and watch them do it. <laughs> yeah, a few more things. Baseball cards were just mentioned. Something that I did on a podcast maybe three months ago was open a pack of baseball cards and have the podcast guests say something about one or two of the players. So I'm going to put the two of you on the spot. This is a pack of Topps Heritage 2021. It is nine cards. We are not going to go over nine players, certainly. But I think that if we have a, a Philly or a Red Sox player, there is some obligation to get some perspective. And oh boy, and there are none. <laughs> there is a Shohei Otani. I don't know if it's possible to talk too much about Shohei Otani. He's obviously been in the news on, on a regular basis. I just think like there's no way how you could dislike Shohei. I think he's everything that you're looking for in a guy that's going to represent baseball. He's a lot of fun. He's 
incredible to watch and, you know, he carries himself really well as well. And I think um, the fact that he's doing what he's doing right now, both on the mound and at the plate, especially, you know, with the home run derby and the all-star game this week has been incredible to watch as someone who follows the sport of baseball and just as, you know, a person following the game as well. Absolutely. I mean, every time you watch him, he, you know, is genuinely having fun and has a smile on his face. And yes, he doesn't speak English publicly, but that his playing and his just enjoyment of the sport of baseball transcends that. And like Emily said, like you don't have to be a diehard baseball fan to recognize what's going on. And I think that, you know, if we're trying to get the younger generation and whatever we're trying to do to make baseball better, or more marketable, I think that Otani turns people's heads because you're, you know, you, oh, he's a, a really good hitter. Oh, but wait, he's a really good pitcher too. And I think that would spark anyone's interest in the sport of baseball. And I think that to have him representing it at that level and, and to have the respect of every other fantastic player in the in the game right now, I mean, how can you not like Shohei Otani and, and want to, you know, stay up late for those West Coast games right now? No, and Shohei is, is power on both sides, the plate and the, the mound. A card here, actually, maybe will lead us into something very different. Zach Davies is, is all about finesse. How much do the two of you in broadcast really like to break down what the pitcher is doing, his repertoire, and the way he's setting up hitters? Um, I like to mention, I think with minor league, it, it kind of fluctuates sometimes with on the on the mound and their approach. But I like to point out from the broadcast standpoint of, you know, kind of the pitch sequence, whether they're setting it up with a, fa- a couple of fastballs inside and then they do the wipeout slider for a strike three or, you know, they, they keep firing in pitches high and then dropping a curveball low and away. Different things like that. I don't try and overanalyze what's going on on the mound just because, you know, I've never been in that position before, and, and I don't want to assume what's going through the head of the pitcher at the time, but I just like to to call what's happening and show whether there's consistency between each hitter or the fact that the pitcher has done a lot of homework with the opposing batters and know each one's weakness and, and is exploiting it while they're pitching. I always think it's interesting, too, in the minor leagues that a lot of these guys are still working on their repertoire, especially with the pandemic. I've talked to a lot of guys who are in the, you know, tried to develop a new pitch over the past few months or are still working on developing a new pitch. And I think it's, you know, always interesting to watch that, try to then bring that in the game and see um, how they can develop it as, you know, a third pitch, a plus plus pitch um, and see where it takes them. Yeah. Let's put your uh, scouting hats back on. Who is the best pitcher that each of you have seen in, I guess it's not the Eastern League anymore. Is it the double A Northeast, I, I believe? Double A Northeast. Double A Northeast. Yeah. So who has stood out on teams other than your own? Other than my own. There are some great pitchers. I just don't, I haven't looked up who, for instance, you've seen. I know Grayson Rodriguez is there. You know, Waldachuk, of course, with Somerset and Otto with the big strikeout numbers. I will say I saw Grayson Rodriguez at low A, and it's not surprising of, of what he's been doing ever since with his, his electric fastball. I will say we, we've seen Simeon Woods Richardson with New Hampshire quite a few times, and he's been pretty dominant. Uh, he's run into some trouble against the Sea Dogs, but I think it's been fun to watch him and Casas go head-to-head a lot, knowing that they're two of the top prospects in their respective organizations, but at the same time, they're going to be Olympic teammates here uh, in a couple of weeks. But I, I've really liked what we've seen from from Woods Richardson. You know, he's got a little bit of a higher ERA, I think, now than than what people might expect from him at this level, but uh, has, the, you know, those flashes of of greatness and, and those types of pitches where you have to sit back and say, wow, that is a, a major league-esque. Uh, pitch coming from him. No, what about you, Emily? I think if we're talking about pitchers from other teams, I mean, I saw Josh Walker and Andrew Lee, or Andrew Mitchell, sorry, of the Binghamton Rumble Ponies double up for a no-hitter about three weeks ago. So that was, you know, as Emma said, sometimes you just have to, you know, recognize greatness for what it is, even when it's not on your team. And obviously no one likes their own team getting no hit, but it still was incredible to watch those guys' composure and go after hitters being aggressive and uh, going after what what they want. Okay. And we are running low on time to close. I would like to hear about Alaska and Australia. You know, this is jumping back into your earlier experiences. Well, I'll say Alaska was was where I fell in love with working in baseball. It was going to the ballpark every day and and seeing the guys get better each and every day 
and then hopping on a bus and ending up in, you know, Fairbanks, Alaska, or, you know, the Kenai Peninsula and watching uh, what's called combat fishing on the ocean and, and those sorts of things. Alaska was an incredible experience. I had a couple of now big leaguers on my team. It's cool to say, but it was such a surreal experience to see a, such a small town rally behind a, a little summer collegiate team and, and go to different communities around Alaska and, and see that kind of same de- dedication. Uh, it was definitely probably my my favorite time when I've been working in baseball, and I'll never forget any of those experiences. Yeah, who were those big leaguers, Emma? Nick Sinzel and Ryan Hendricks. They're both with the Reds. Yes, fantastic. Yeah, and Emily, you were in, I believe it was Melbourne, Australia? Yes, I worked for the Melbourne Aces for a winter season out there. Um, that was pretty incredible, too, because it's pretty much their top league out there, so they have all different kinds of talent on the roster at once. So you could have, at one point we had a, a 40-year-old ex-major leaguer throwing to an 18-year-old catcher just getting his professional start. So it was pretty incredible. We ended up winning the championship out there, and I got a lot of meet, meet a lot of great guys. And the the atmosphere out there is a little bit different. It's a little more chill, so got to speak to them on a personal level and uh, get to know a little bit more about the game on the inside. Yeah, and the 40-year-old former big leaguer, Emily, was who? Peter Moylan out there. Uh, And we also had Delman Young as well. Right, Delman Young, who has been raking in the Australian Baseball League for a few years. Yeah, he (laughs) has. Moylan being one of baseball's great characters, certainly. Oh, definitely. Yep. Yeah, we are over time. You know, thank you both for coming on. You can both get together at the ballpark tonight and talk about how scattered your podcast host was today. So, <laughs> and, and hopefully you have a uh, a great, great baseball game. Well, thank you Absolutely. for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Okay, thanks to both of you, and thanks everybody for listening. Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. As I speak to you, it's Wednesday, and we're a day past the annual All-Star Game and two days past the Home Run Derby. I wanted to share some thoughts on both of those contests, and with me to discuss them both and and to talk a little bit more about some of the participants uh, is is Dan Zimborski. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Jay. How's it going? How how is your post-All-Star hangover? Not too bad. I got more sleep last night after the All-Star game than I did after the Derby because for some reason I am intent on writing up a full recap of the Derby with videos and statistics and all kinds of stuff. Uh, It's one of those things where since nobody else is covering it for us, I've just kind of expanded to fill the space with both a preview and a recap. And uh, and doing it with my TiVo and kind of meticulously taking notes on stuff. Whereas the Derby, I was actually working on uh, my my next piece, uh, which which ran today Wednesday at uh, at Fangraphs on Joey Gallo and kind of watching the All Star Game more intermittently and and getting to bed at a more reasonable hour. How about yourself? Pretty good. Now you talk about the Derby versus the All Star Game and. I don't know. It, it could be my personal bias and preferences, but it does feel like there's a different kind of energy for the home run derby versus the all-star game with the all-star game. They spent so many years, you know, trying to find some sort of weird, just weird idea, weird scheme to make it count, make the all-star game important. And they never really kind of dawned on that because the stakes weren't that big because the, the, the chances that it would affect an individual player in the all-star game were very small. But the home run derby, which doesn't mean anything but money, actually does feel like it means something. There's there's more electricity, and I think that's kind of what baseball needs to look at and say, you know, we don't necessarily need a gimmick or a scheme to make things feel important. If we treat something as important and the players are into it, it's going to seem important. That'll kind of carry over to the fandom. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. You know, we're almost 25 years into interleague play right now. In fact, this would be the 25th season if we're talking uh, since it started in 1997. And the idea of National League and American League players being on the same field uh, no longer has a novelty to it. This is purely an exhibition. As you said, they've thankfully decoupled the uh, home field advantage in the World Series from this. And, you know, especially when you've got guys coming and going every two, three innings uh, so that everybody can get a turn. It has the, more of the feel of a spring training game at, at times. I mean, it's it's fun to see these guys together. It's fun to see how much they enjoy it. I think that's that might be the thing that I enjoy the most at this point is seeing, you know, what a kick it is for Fernando Tatis 
uh, Jr. and Vlad Guerrero Jr. to be on the same field as Max Scherzer or whoever, you know, and to see, you know, these guys feel accepted for, for having become stars and having over, in some cases, having overcome some significant obstacles in their career. But you don't feel like the bragging rights is there in the same way that the, the Home Run Derby has. And, and, the Home Run Derby is nothing but a gimmick machine, but they have finally come up, I think, with the gimmick that makes it work, and that is these timed rounds. You know, when it used to be you got a certain number of swings, you know, could keep hitting until you made a certain number of outs, it was a goddamn slog. And now that you've got this time factor, the time, you know, has has gotten compressed you know, in a, in a, as a means of tightening the derby, it's become a, a just that much more watchable event, particularly when you couple it with the uh, uh, ability to measure all the drives with Statcast. Yeah, I, I dare say that uh, when you when you talk about kind of the time pressure, the time stress, adding a new element, I'm sure not everyone listening to this would be happy with my opinion on this. But I think MLB should look at this when they think about something like pitch clocks, because adding time to any kind of sport or competition adds an additional level of stress, an additional level of just tension to the mix. If you look at like like world championship chess matches, they're played on like long time frames, but they have blitz tournaments that are played with a significant, you know, time disadvantage for 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 all the players to to think about their moves. And I think having this sense of time can keep baseball from feeling just too casual in a way like eh, the pitcher's going to throw to the batter when he gets around it. Maybe the batter will saunter to the box after his crotch is in, in order. Oh, here we go. I think that it's not that games are so long. It's that there's just too much time when nothing's happening. And during the home run derby, something is happening every moment. Yeah, I don't know about every moment as far as the derby, you know, even because I had to because I had to deal with with, you know, <laughs> dodging a little bit of bedtime stuff for, for, for my daughter and then going back and, and and making sure I had the totals right and, and try, you know, trying to jot down some of the nuances. I did get to fast forward through some of the downtime between rounds. And it's there. You got a lot of commercial breaks. I mean, Shohei Otani, the number one seed in the tournament, didn't hit until his first round until 86 minutes into the broadcast, which, you know, that's a that's a that's a long time to wait. That's that's more than half of half of the broadcast. You know, so there is a lot of downtime. And and I guess depending on which which uh, broadcast you watch, the quality of the, the quality of the patter can vary. I actually watched the Statcast broadcast with Mike Petriello good friend here and the great Jason Benetti and Jessica Mendoza. And, and I thought that they did a good job of keeping people informed and bringing some of the, the science and the analytics into it in a way that wasn't overly obtrusive. I'm, I know that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Chris Berman was, wasn't on the, the regular ESPN call this year. That got pretty old for me a while back. But, uh, you know, I think that, uh, again, this has just become a, a much more watchable spectacle. And one of the benefits of the StatCast broadcast isn't just that, you know, you get different kind of information that you're more interested in. It also, for me, you know, a smug middle-aged sports writer, I, I complain a lot less because when I watch, you know, a, a big broadcast like the World Series or something, I will generally get just stupidly annoyed with some little nitpicky thing and it'll drive me nuts for half the game and I'll I'll look like a dumbass on Twitter because I'm just talking about that. Uh, so it keeps me focused on the game more. Right. When going into the Derby, who did, who did you think was, was going to win? I, I thought there was a good chance that Shohei Otani was going to win. He's just been on, you know, on an incredible run this year. Uh, Pete Alonso, of course, I mean, he, he won. He edged out Trey Mancini in, in the finals. And Alonzo's a good pick because he's got, you know, he's one of those classic, you know, young power hitting first baseman that, that we don't really have as many right now. It seems like everybody has more dimensions. Well, right. he's just like, you know, a power dude. You know, he's not going to save 15 runs a year with the glove. They're not going to put him in center field like, like Bellinger is for the Dodgers. He's just a first baseman. He's a regular old first baseman. And that, that, that does appeal to me uh, in these times. So I thought he did have a chance. It seemed like everybody in the Derby had kind of the right swing for it. Uh, they usually, you know, they sometimes have like a real like line drive guy or two, like like Freddie Freeman, who's not really a pure home run hitter. He's like a guy who gets a million line drives and doubles and stuff. Right. I, I thought it was a good cast of characters. My only complaint is I still want to see a picture be the eight seed. <laughs> that would be kind of fun. I mean, not just I, a tiny, like a, a picture, yeah, picture, right? Like right, like right, Bumgarner right. or or Degrom. I guess they probably don't want to let Degrom do that just because he gets injured. That would be a disaster, uh, and it would never happen again. But I want to see it. That's that. That would please me. 
It would have been a good idea a few years ago when we it seemed like we were kind of at a at a, at a recent peak with guys like Syndergaard and Bumgarner and 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 a few others uh, to do a pitcher's home run derby separately, just as a like you know replace the celebrity softball game with that, please. You know, it's probably a more a more entertaining spectacle. You know, seeing seeing those guys do it. But I actually like the celebrity all star softball game, okay, except well, I have a, I'm a little more crestfallen every year when I recognize fewer and fewer of the celebrities. Yeah, that's 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 it. I I mean, you know, when I was, when, you know, 15 years ago, I recognized a lot more of the celebrities. And, and now, uh, you know, that's not really the case. I thought Otani had a pretty good chance. You know, when I looked at all the metrics, you know, he has such such separation and, you know, in all of his batted ball stats. It seemed like, you know, he was the obvious pick. Certainly the odds makers had it that way. The other guy who I thought really had a chance was Joey Gallo. You know, and we've been pining for Gallo to do the home run derby forever. Going back to, uh, you know, his legendary batting practices uh, at the Futures game. I mean, it was it always seemed like, boy, you get this guy in, in the right conditions, he's going to put on a fireworks show. But, you know, neither Otani nor Gallo made it out of the first round. It seemed like First of all, I guess the you know seeding it based just on home run totals without factoring any other metrics might not be the most elaborate system, and 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 so that helps to explain why why all four seeds uh, top seeds fell in the first round. But so much of it really, especially when you're talking about a timed event where efficiency matters, so much of it comes down to the quality of the pitcher. And man, Pete Alonso's partner Dave Jouse was just putting that ball you know, in the right spot every time. And I think Otani's pitcher and some of the others did not have nearly as tight a placement. And, and you know, if you're swinging at pitches that aren't quite in your, you know, your happy zone, you know, you're not giving it your best, your best chance. And, and you know, you got to keep taking your hacks, but that's just one of the unfortunate aspects of the competition is not everybody's created equally. I thought that Kevin Long was pretty erratic in pitching to, to Juan Soto, and that may have cost him, especially in that, in that semifinal round. Obviously he got past Otani and what was, what was probably, the, the best individual round of the night, that double tiebreaker one with the 60-second swing-off and then the three-swing swing-off. What, what what they could have done, if, if you want to make it, because, you know, the nice thing about the Home Run Derby is that it's okay that it's not even because nobody's going to get heat for, like, not winning the Home Run Derby. They're going to say, right. he sucks, you lost the Home Run Derby. No one's, no one's going to do that. I guess if I want to be really mean, I could say f- to make it on an even uh, field, they could just have the Rockies' bullpen throw the home run derby and just have them actually try to get the batters out perfect oh, always always taking shots at the rockies I, I you know i look i thought i i thought i took shots at the rockies and then, and then you joined fan graphs and oh my god it's just, it's just hey they don't get enough heat in the national media and someone has to bust their chops yeah, no, it's it's funny. I remember back then to when I think I, I, I found out that you were joining joining Fangraphs when I was coming back from our trip to Denver, my first year on staff, and I had I had watched the Rockies and I was kind of formulating a uh, a blistering hot take in my head of why can't this team put together a competent outfield? And this was 2018, and we've you know since then they've they've, they've gotten no better. But uh, yeah, you've you've surpassed me in your Rockies hot takes, and I think we're probably going to be in for for more of that as as <laughs> Uh, as they disassemble the current cast of characters here. Let's move on to the All-Star game. You know, I as I said, I didn't watch it as closely as I did the Derby. I did watch it, you know, for Otani. I was impressed by, you know, by the by the fact that they Major League Baseball actually bent the rules a little bit to allow him to serve both as a starting pitcher and then get another crack as the DH and then, you know, just kind of little wrinkle in the rules there that that otherwise wouldn't have been there. You know, and, and I thought Vlad Vlad Guerrero Jr.'s home run was was easily the best moment of the game. You know, it was great to see one of the young stars rise to the occasion and, and, and grab the spotlight. What were your what stood out most to you? Well, I think if we talk about like the whole week as like a as a as as, as a whole, this was kind of in a way show how Yatani's coming out show. He was probably the player most talked about. Right. And it was just a lot of fun to see him because as I mean, we alluded to it earlier, the the game itself just, you know, isn't super exciting. It's low tension. Everybody's kind of getting into the game. It's not it's not played like a regular game of baseball that teams are trying to win. It's it's like one of those uh, like when the sitcoms get together and have a reunion show like what <laughs> Friends did recently where they just kind of hang around and tell stories. And then there's all these random celebrities showing up for some reason. I mean, yeah, that's it's fine and it's fun, but it's not super exciting. And I think that's kind of the impression I get from the All-Star game is that 
it doesn't really stick with me anymore. I can think back, and I still remember, you know, the Bo Jackson year when he did that that long throw when he hit that huge home run. I still remember that. Like, I don't know if it's just you know sepia tone memories of of someone in their forties now. But I, I remember that, and I just don't get an impression from All-Star Games this year. I, I almost think it's, it's, in a way, the All-Star Game is the least interesting part of All-Star Week. Yeah, you know, again, I think you might you might be right. I mean, and a lot of people like the Futures game. I thought the Futures game, unfortunately, oh, I love it. really, really was suffered in, in terms of the scheduling going up against, you know, have, first of all, they put the draft on the same day. Yeah. Uh, a few hours later, there was also you had the uh, the Euro final in soccer, which, you know, a lot of people were, were as interested or more interested in, and just kind of a tough spot on the calendar there. But, you know, the All-Star Game, yeah, I, I go back to the, the 1978 All-Star Game when Steve Garvey was the MVP in 79, when Dave Parker had just those two just ridiculous throws, you know, and, and, and those stand out, or Tim Raines' late entry in the, it's the 87 All-Star Game to win the MVP and, and uh, just some, you know, some other, you know, special moments like that. But I think, you know, I think that the, the Guerrero home run to me will, will stand out as that special thing. I think I'm struck by... You know, how little the starters play. Otani going only one inning, I can sort of understand because, you know, look, he also did the derby. He's also batting. He is, you know, being pulled in so many directions right now. Scherzer only going one inning felt like a little bit of a letdown. Why does Scherzer go one inning and Corbin Burns go two innings? And Burns got the snot knocked out of him. I I think there's something like, you know, four or five balls that were more than 100 miles an hour hit off of him. Four. I've got the stat cast up here, including the uh, the Guerrero homer and and a uh, Rafael Devers double. I think uh, just about everybody on the National League side only got two plate appearances. Nobody nobody on the NL side got more than two plate appearances. A few guys got three for for the AL, Guerrero, Bogarts, Aaron Judge. You kind of want to see the the starters in there for for a longer time. And the fact that Fernando Tatis Jr. was like the first guy to go out, uh, it's not the yeah, best you, marketing of the game. <laughs> yeah, you you want you want a lot of Tatis. Yeah. I I did lie. I did I did get a strong impression from Freddie Peralta. He I mean he, in his inning he 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 mowed down uh, yeah. Garcia uh, medals and JD Martinez. That was that was fun. He looked terrific during that inning. And I thought it was a a good showcase for a player who you know he doesn't get as much attention as, as some of the other stars on the team. And as, as for Max Scherzer, my feeling is when Max Scherzer only goes one inning, it's because he was willing to only go one inning. If he wanted to yeah. go two innings, I think we would have seen him in a second inning. That's true. Who's gonna take who's gonna take the ball away from Max Scherzer? Yeah. <laughs> he might start strip he might start stripping right on the mound, and that'll be the end yeah. of the all-star game. Yeah. Well, I want to talk about one other one other player in particular because uh, I was, you know, I went into this, like I said, went into the uh, Derby thinking about Joey Gallo, you know, and because he made the All Star team, planning to write about his rebound from a terrible twenty twenty season, and I reached out and asked asked you for a projection because I, you know, I wanted to see what what his next few years looked like, what his current rebound has has done. For his prospects here. So I wrote about him, you know, come hell or high water. He was not a factor in the Derby, although, you know, he, he only, he came within one home run of tying. And there's a conspiracy theory out there that while Trevor Story's uh, buzzer beater home run counted, Gallows didn't. And, and that was because Story was the, was the, uh, uh, was was there, you know, representing the host team. I, I don't know if I believe it. I didn't get a really good look at, that, at it in real time. But, you know, Gallo was a late, uh, you know, a late inning entry. He walked. He didn't do much, unlike unlike his last All-Star appearance when he was, you know, he came off the bench and hit a, a home run that turned out to be the deciding run in 2019. But just thinking about Gallo and, 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 and what he's done uh, this year, he changed his batting stance. He found, he, that he looking back at video, that he was, that he was uh, crouching too much, obviously had a just a massive increase in his launch angle. He was average launch angle of 26.8 degrees last year, 3.6 higher than any other hitter and 4.4 higher than his own 2019 average. And he's worked on lowering his angle, which, you know, is kind of the opposite of what we've seen a lot of players try to do in recent years. You gave me some projections that that show that Gallo, despite 
not getting his batting average out of the two tens over the next five years. Currently, he's hitting two thirty something, but obviously with with more interesting uh, on base and everyone's slung, hitting two thirty something. Yeah, everybody's hitting two thirty <laughs> something. But but for Gallo, you know, a guy who a guy who who hit two oh eight in two thousand seventeen and eighteen, and then had a half season of 275, 417, 643 before getting hurt, was down at, at, at 181 last year, is back up there. Your Zips projection doesn't see his batting average as, as doing much, but uh, even so, thanks to his slugging percentage and his, his, and his patience at the plate, still coming out as a 3.8 win in 2023 and 24, and 16 wins, 16 wins of replacement from 23 to 27, which he placed a valuation of, of 131 million. Can you uh, let's talk about that and, and what you foresee for Gallo and 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 how that could uh, have an impact on you know whether he stays with the Rangers and and, and where he goes from here. I don't think he'll actually get that money uh, simply because I think that there's just not a lot of appetite to paying first base corner outfield guys right now. And I think there's an argument that the pendulum's gone too much in that direction, that given Joey Gallo's age, because he's not going to be in his 30s when he hits free agency, uh, he's, 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 his age 29 season is 2023. Uh, so he is slightly younger than the typical first base candidate. And I think he's underrated in some other ways. He's actually a, a pretty solid defensive corner outfielder. Uh, you never really think of of you know the slugging kind of three true outcome types as as good defensive players but he he really is in a corner yeah i'd put him i'd, I'd call him a plus actually yeah. i mean i'm looking at his statcast page he's at 95 percentile for out for outs above average and outfielder jump well above average in both uh, defensive runs saved and uzr and i kind of uzr i don't take particularly seriously relative to those other metrics but i think he's a true plus out there and he showed a couple of years ago that that he's he could even handle center field so i you know i think dumping him in that yeah. you know one dimensional slugger bucket is a mistake because he can he can do a lot of things and and he's athletic you know he's average speed but knows what he's doing out there and you know I think that that's that sets him apart from from some of the some of the other alternatives. I I think the other problem is almost perception in a way and I think perception is less of a big deal than it used to be. I think that front offices these days are better at ignoring that, but there's kind of this this sense of like Greg Jeffries disease in which he was a highly touted prospect. And he just ended up a really good player, not a superstar. Now, he's been hitting like a superstar lately. Uh, since since June 4th, when when his OPS, his, he, was, he was slugging under 400 at that point. In the last month, he has a 1,300 OPS. He's had an amazing yeah. month. He's just been on a tear. His, if you stopped paying attention to the Rangers a month ago or two months ago, or let's be honest, April, someone might not know without looking at Gallo that, that he's having such a terrific year, especially the, the last month or so. Uh, so I think there's kind of that little perception that he's underperformed. And compared to being like a star, yeah, he has. He's he's never going to hit for a great average. But if you look at it in like every season he's been in the majors, he's put up at least two war, two wins above replacement. He's been at least an average player every year. He was even on pace for a two war season last year thanks to his defense. Right. He right. wasn't even hitting that well and he, he was won still a on gold, pace. He won a gold glove thanks to the because it was all stat cast. He never would have I mean all uh uh, Saber defensive index, you know, with a 181 batting average, he never would have gotten a, a, a good look from the voters. You know, we we both know that that gold <laughs> gloves are at least you know subconsciously uh, that offense does enter into it. That the good field no hit guy isn't the one who wins. It's the good it's the good field good hit guy who does. We've seen that time and again. But the Saber defensive index, which is which is an amalgamation of several systems, including DRS and and others, Chris Dials runs a effectively defended and total zone and uh, I'm forgetting the other one there but it's not UZR if I'm not mistaken I can't, I can't remember if Stackass has been incorporated into it either but yeah Gallo has you know Gallo has a, a pretty solid floor thanks to, thanks to his defensive capabilities and that's that's kind of what struck me I wonder I really do wonder you know he stated his desire to stay in Texas you know that he wants to be there that money is not his primary objective he's a year he's he's you know he's he could be a free agent after next year so the the Rangers are really at a crossroads. They're rebuilding. They've got a strong farm system, but they're 20 games uh, below 500 right now. And it's a tough stretch to think that, you know, next year is going to be a competitive year for them. They really do have to look, you know, to the the free agent years of Joey Gallo, you know, as as when they're going to be competitive and figure out, you know, whether it's better to try to build around him 
because they'll still be, you know, late 20s, early 30s at that point, you know, or whether it's better to sell high on him now. You could always resign him later if you if you yeah, want. That, yeah, exactly. I See mean, Chapman. You know, I mean, the Yankees, yeah. they got Torres, which, who was more exciting before this season. They got sure. Torres and they got Chapman back. So you can do right. both. And if he understands why, I mean, I don't think he's going to say, well, screw you. I'm never going to sign with you again. I mean, it. Right. you can have both you can have the beer and the tacos <laughs> yeah i think that, i think that's a good point and i think I, I i'm very interested to see how it comes out because you know that we we hear a lot about certain you know the possibility that certain players are going to be traded um especially you know with the cubs recent 11 game losing streak the idea that chris bryant and or javi Baez and or uh, Anthony Rizzo could be on the market or those are those are all if not if they're not necessarily at their peaks right now they would still probably probably be among the top bats available at the deadline you put Joey Gallo in that mix especially the way he's been swinging the bat over the last six weeks 213 WRC plus in that span only only Otani 233 has been higher 13 of his 24 homers in his last 18 games you know, he's obviously going to be a desirable guy there because he could, you know, especially when you factor the fact into it that he can play multiple positions, he could probably handle any outfield spot over the course of the final two months of the season. He's been playing right field. Um, he's done center field before. He's got experience, obviously, at first base. He's no longer a third baseman. He said he hates third base uh, back in the day. So I don't think that's a realistic option, but he's got plenty of left field experience. I think the Yankees, you know, are a team that really sh- could use him. Uh, you put that stroke in Yankee Stadium, and you're going to get a lot of a lot of easy home runs to you know off off of that bat. There are there are a lot of fun places for him. Yeah, you can think of him in Milwaukee. Yeah, right. Oh, God. Milwaukee would be fun. <laughs> oh, he he and they would love him in Milwaukee. He too. would be he would be beloved in Milwaukee. He really would. Yeah, the Brewers, their fans, when they have someone who busts out, they embrace that. And I've always respected that about Brewers fandom. You can become a folk hero in in Milwaukee very quickly. But the Brewers would be fun. The Phillies would be fun. The Mets putting him in left would be fun. There are a lot of places that could use a Gallo. And that's got to factor in the Rangers' decision that it's probably going to be the best market ever to, to trade Gallo. Yeah, that's kind of my thinking too. I mean, even if you wait, you know, till after the season, you run the risk of him cooling off. You're getting him for only one pennant race instead of two. If you're going to do it, you got to do it now. Yeah, and it's important to get a player for two pennant races. We've seen over the last 20 years, there's there's less and less desire for, for teams to spend a lot to get a player for two months. They want to have that pennant race and the possible next one if you want right. to start moving prospects because teams do not want to move their prospects easily. Those those days are over. No team wants to do that. Even teams that I make lots of jokes about that you can say that I've written three articles about them and I just fill in the names Mad Libs fashion. I won't say which team that is, though. <laughs> right. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how how, how Gallo fares uh, over the rest of uh, this month and whether he's moved and, and, and whether he can uh, hold on to the gains that he's shown. Any final thoughts here? No, I just think that when we talk about Gallo, that's I think that you could get him on board with that and say, you know, hey, Bubala, you don't want to be a Texas Ranger for the next year and a half. Come back in 2023. It'll it'll be start to get cooler then. Right. We'll work it out. That 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 yeah. that's my feelings on, on Gallo. And I I'd love to have them on the on the Orioles if if the Orioles were competing and they're not. Sorry, it's it's still zero point zero percent. All right. Well, thanks very much, Dan. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Emily Messina and Emma Tiedemann for joining us. And if you want more podcast content from us over here at Fangraphs, make sure to check out Effectively Wild three times a week with Ben Lindbergh and Meg Rowley and Chin Music with Kevin Goldstein every Friday. If you weren't aware of those shows, you might be if you had signed up for the Fangraphs newsletter. We have so much free baseball stuff for you to check out, and that is the best way to stay apprised. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.